Hello and welcome to a new episode of Other Record Labels. I'm your host, Scott Orr, where we talk about the art and culture of running an independent record label. And today we have another episode in our series on sync licensing. And it's an interview today with Tarek Bradford. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about Tarek. Tarek is a sync agent. And so this is what we talk about a little bit in today's episode. Of course, we talk all about sync licensing, but specifically from a sync agent's role. And so, so far in this series, we've talked uh, with somebody who works in advertising and music placement and advertising. We've talked to someone who runs a music library and what that means. And today we're going to discover what a sync agent does. Now, this is sort of different from music supervisors, but a sync agent would work with an artist or a group of artists or a record label or a group of record labels and represent, kind of like a real estate agent, represent their, these specific catalogs. And in most cases, they'll have an exclusive deal with these selection of songs and they'll represent these songs and they will shop them to their contacts who are music supervisors. It's very difficult these days to connect directly with a music supervisor. And so sometimes you use a sync agent as the go-between to go between and they take a certain percentage. So that's a, just a kind of a quick overview of a sync agent. Tarek Bradford is the owner of of Dahomey Music Enterprises. And this is his own company as a sync agent. Before that though, he's worked with EMI as the senior director of film and TV music licensing. He worked for Universal Music and Rhino, we get all into it. Just as a reminder, as we dive into the topic of sync licensing, make sure you download my free guide to sync licensing. And you can get that by going to other record labels dot com slash sync that's spelled s-y-n-c and you can also hear all of the other episodes in this series on sync licensing at otherrecordlabels.com slash sync when when and thank you again for taking the time very sure. honored to speak with you when sure. we're recording this right we're right in the middle of of this kate bush song blowing up and right. all because of a, a placement in a TV show. And I would imagine times like these put a much deserved spotlight on your profession and creates a bit of awareness to the to the work that you guys do. Do you feel that? Um, yes and no, and okay. not always in the most positive way. Okay. It, it definitely puts a, a spotlight on um, more directly on music supervisors mm -hmm. and um, and also just the world of television and film and licensing. And you'll see a, a lot more conversations, even from people outside of the industry, talking right. about that, especially people who are are fans of, you know, somebody like a Kate Bush, especially when it's an iconic artist. Sure. And, you know, with stuff like that, I, when things like this happen, you'll get calls or texts from friends, family members who aren't in the music business. <laughs> oh, right. Because it's made get, the mainstream media. Yeah, it's made the mainstream yeah. <laughs> media. And they'll always have their... Uh, they're great suggestions about you should do that. Why don't you do that with, with this artist? Oh, you know what? You should do it. There's there's a lot of that always. So it definitely raises the the profile. And yeah. then she did something that was relatively unprecedented. I don't remember anyone doing this. She openly talked about it and um made a, a post about hmm. the actual placement. And oh. that just doesn't generally happen, especially with artists of her stature. Yeah. So I think that's definitely brought um, more of a spotlight on to just the world of licensing and, you know, what things can do for a particular song or an artist. So what's the negative? 
the negative is that people tend to, and by people, I mean, people in the industry is what you will have is a lot of artists, managers, especially labels, publishers will say, why wasn't that my, mm. why wasn't that my artist? Why wasn't that my song? Right. I want something exactly like that. And the reality is, is many people will tell you things, you know, the vast majority of things go relatively unnoticed. Right. So yeah. this is more of an anomaly. Not that it doesn't happen from time to time, but just the overwhelming to where it crosses over to where it's talked about a variety and things outside of just film and TV. It's an anomaly. Yeah. But because it is high profile and because the show is high profile, you'll have labels, publishers, artists, managers who will look at it. And instead of asking somebody either in my position or a music supervisor or just a, a studio or network, oh, what other kind of opportunities are there for that? They will make a lot of assumptions. Mm-hmm. And with something like this, you you never know unless you're in the room or a part of the project. But if you haven't seen the sync, projects like that are typically written in the script. Ah, I see. So it's So it's not necessarily something that somebody in my position is pitching to say, yeah. oh, no, there are some opportunities that come up like that. But when something is so specific and a scene is written around yeah. a song, that's, you know, that was written in the script. So there's not much that you can really do in that situation. It's not a it's not a usual sync. Yeah. It's a very unusual circumstance. And those I've worked on some of those and some shows and some projects and some scenes will call for a particular thing. They might say, oh, we are looking for a well-known song recognizable from a certain era Mm -hmm. and we want it to be female or this or that. Or they might come to you directly and say, this is what we have in this script. Can you help us get this cleared? Right, right. And then you're going through the process of clearing it. Well, to outside people, it looks like, you know, there was some great creative idea of like, you know what should be great in Stranger Things? This Kate Bush song at this point in this time. And that usually doesn't happen that (laughs) way. Not that, not to that specific level. Does, so do you think, talking about the negatives, do you think that this presents a little bit of a a challenge for independent artists? Do you think there's going to be a lot of people who are just very excited about legacy artists and trying to revitalize an old track similar to this? No, I don't. I honestly don't think, I know people don't want to hear this. I don't think it really is going to have that much effect on the day-to-day hmm. for, for independent artists or for legacy artists hmm. because it is an anomaly. Yeah. So yeah. as much as that's the, what I meant about the negative side is people in my position and supervisors are going to get all this pressure when it's really just an outlier yeah, compared right. to the day-to-day that you do. You might be working on 10 different shows and 40 different scenes, and there might be one scene like this in one show that's a high-profile show, but now the perception is, oh, that's how all shows are, and the opportunity should be there, and my artist should have that, and I have a legacy artist that's just as great as Kate Bush or is greater, or uh-huh. and, it, and it just doesn't typically work like that. Like, yeah. I, I worked um, years ago, I was at Warner Music Group, and I was a part of the um, the film for, working on the film for uh, Ray. Okay. And it was, you know, a huge undergoing that was years in the making. 
and in terms of clearing mm. the songs, getting the approvals, working with at that time Ray was still alive. Mm. So working with Ray and his team and getting certain songs approved, working with the publisher to make sure things were approved and came in under, but under over budget, Jimmy Fox was attached to it. Mm. So it was years in the making. And then he passed right before the film came out. Hmm. So the profile of it was huge yes. because he had just passed. And then the timing worked out, not that you want someone to pass, yeah. but just I, in I terms that. of the profile. So it looked like, wow, this was perfectly done. And it it wasn't that. It was years in the making yeah. to get Jenny Fox on board, to get a script done. That was three, five years. And then to get all the songs cleared was a couple of years. Wow. And then it just happened to the timing worked out to where, oh, okay, you have Jamie Foxx, whose star is growing. You have an all-time great, iconic artist who, at that time, was having health issues. Yeah. And then you had this movie coming out, and then he passes. And then at the same time, people remember, he had been sampled heavily by um, mainstream hip-hop artists. Mm. Um, Kanye West had sampled him for Gold Digger. All right. Uh, yes. Ludacris had sampled him for Georgia. So he was in the public conscious as a, an older artist. And then the movie came out. So it was just the so stars it, aligning. Yeah. Well, that's interesting you say that because it's easy to, to look at this Stranger Things and just think, hot show, great song, but it really is this perfect storm as you're describing. Right. And 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 you can't replicate that because it's it's really... It's a little bit of luck, really, <laughs> even it's though the song is great. And, and that's just yeah. the, the reality of it. And I'm sure Kate, because the other thing that I've, I've noticed is people talking about that outside of the industry, talking about how difficult Kate Bush is to clear. And that hasn't been my experience. Mm. I mean, her music has been licensed a lot of different places. And just the fact that people don't know that kind of shows that this particular sync is an anomaly because there's probably 20, 30 other syncs that you could point to like, oh, her song was used in this, but it didn't resonate like that. The yeah. scene didn't yeah. resonate like that, the timing, and it just didn't come together like that. But you could pull up a bunch of different songs that she has licensed over the years, over hmm. many years. Yeah. This is just the, the right time and then the right scene. Because a lot of times, sometimes the song may be licensed and it's buried deep in the mix and it doesn't stand out as clearly as it did in that particular scene. That's that's another great point, and and I also think I wonder if this particular and we're going to move on from this, but it, this this particular scene with Stranger Things is that it's also exposing this song to a very young demographic who weren't even right. alive when this track came out, and so if that were track were to be placed in a in a movie that was geared towards people's in their forties and fifties, they would go, oh, I know that song, you know, and it wouldn't have surprised right. them. But I think a lot of people are going. What song is this? Is this a modern right. song? <laughs> and that's and that's part of what raises the profile of it because also that younger generation that may be seeing that is a lot more active on social media mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. than maybe the original audience that may not be on social media as heavy as fans of the show who are a lot of times tweeting in real time. That's right. And then, and then it is swell grows. So it is... It, it is like that perfect storm of the audience, the timing, the show. Because like you said, if it was a film that was set when that song originally came out, that's 
probably going to target a certain audience. Right. And it may not have the same effect, even if the song is used the exact same way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I, I, I do want to ask you, you said that it may not change anything moving forward, but I'm curious about all of the subsequent streaming revenue that's coming with that song. And I'm wondering if you think there might be any precedent moving forward where studios or agencies may ask for a cut of that or the opposite, where a legacy artist is saying, here, use my song for next to nothing in hopes for a career bump. Um, well, the latter part that you asked about here, use my song, has already been happening oh, for okay. the past, you oh. know, twenty plus years. I like, didn't know that. That's already every time something like that. It, that goes back to what I was saying about the negative part, is mm-hmm. because you will have an artist, just pick an artist of the same ilk or the same era, mm-hmm. who will be calling their publisher and their label now that they hear about this and say, "Go get me one of these." <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then they'll and they'll say, I don't care, give it away for free. Yeah. Oh wow. And then so that's a constant struggle. And then it just doesn't work like that. Like, I don't care how great the artist is, how great the song is, does it fit for that particular project at that time? And a lot of times artists will want it to be like, okay, they're releasing a best of or greatest hits, or there's some event they're going on tour. Well, licensing just doesn't time out the way you always want it to. I see. Like there was, to the best of my knowledge, I could be wrong. There wasn't any big Kate Bush thing going on right now. Yeah, that's a good point. There might so be it, now. <laughs> so now it's, but it's now it's like retroactive. It's you're reacting yeah. as opposed to like a label or a publisher or an artist or a manager might say, okay, we want to set this in place. We want this to happen in June of 2022 because we have a best of coming out and right. she's going to be on tour. And it just is really hard for that to happen. So that's already been happening and it rarely works out. I've yeah. had in my past have tons of artists. I've dealt with legacy artists who would call and complain and say, go get me one of those. And it <laughs> rarely works out. Yeah. And even if you, you know, quote unquote, give it away or lower the fee. Like it just, it, it, there's still a creative aspect to it, no matter who the artist is. And then the first, I'm sorry, what was your first question again? Oh, well, the, the opposite. Yeah. Where, where maybe a, um, Netflix would say, Hey, listen, we want some of these 5 million streams a day that you're getting from us. No, absolutely no. not. No, no label or publisher is going to cut <laughs> them in on that. Yeah. For one, they're they're going to say that you make enough money on your own. Yeah. And the and I'm sure the artists, if people know anything about the streaming percentages that artists and even labels get from some of the services, is there's not that much to share anyway. That's right. So That's a lot right. of times the numbers look great, but when you actually do the math on it. It's not, it's not the same. It doesn't translate 100% to what used to be record sales, mm-hmm. where you could identify 1 million records made $100 million for the label. It yes. doesn't translate as easily as that. It's streams, it's downloads, it's what period of time, what country, it's all these other metrics that are measured. So obviously there's a benefit and there's a boost and there's money to be made. But it's, I don't even think you know, a company like Netflix or a studio or network would even want to be involved in that because their money is a much more direct. Right, right, right. And right. having to figure out the mathematics of streaming services. 
Um, I, I wanted to make these episodes, you know, more evergreen, um, but I really wanted to ask you about that. So thank you for sharing your expertise on that, uh, something that is trending right now. Let's talk about you. Your, your LinkedIn is pretty intimidating. You've worked for Rhino and EMI and Universal and Virgin and, and pretty much the last 20 years have been in the film and TV licensing world. How did this facet of the industry become your passion? It was honestly kind of by accident. Okay, I was, I was already working in the music industry at at Virgin in the in the nineties. I um, started interning at. I knew I wanted to work in music, but I didn't know exactly where I wanted to be. So I just started interning in a bunch of different places at radio stations, at studios, at labels, publishers, until I could just kind of get in the door. Mm. And, you know, all I really knew about the music industry was, you know, kind of like, oh, well, Barry Gordy has Motown. How can I become the next Barry Gordy or the next <laughs> NR person that yeah. signs the next hot new, you know, artist? And that was kind of my goal. And then I, I, in college, I did some radio. And then as I got in the industry, I started do working in the uh, urban promotions department at Virgin okay, and kind of navigating my way through that. And then the industry consolidated back in the late 90s. They had a, a day they termed Black Friday. Where oh, that's right. Of, I remember that. A bunch of the labels. Yeah, a bunch of the labels um, and publishers consolidated and got bought. And then Virgin got bought by EMI. And my department, everybody got let go. Mm. The the entire department and company basically shut down. And so everybody was scrambling around for jobs. And at that time, I was I had been a floater, which basically meant you went from different department and doing whatever people needed you to do. And I was working heavily in, in urban promotions. And I said, you know, instead of going after promotions, marketing or A&R, which are kind of like the three areas that everybody is looking for a job in. Uh-huh. I need to try to find another area to at least have a job. Cause at this point there's a, you know, I'm out of a job. Yeah. So I went on several interviews and then there was an opening at Warner music group for a job that at the time was called A&R licensing. And I knew a little bit about licensing just from soundtracks that Virgin had released. And I did the interview, they explained to it, and it was actually licensing music for compilations. Okay. So there wasn't okay. a lot of really A&R. That was kind of like a, um, a smoke signal to get people in. It was really putting together compilations and licensing the songs that third-party people would come out and request. So if you remember um, dating myself, the um, some of the compilations you might get at truck stops, okay, uh, hair, hair bands of the '80s sure. or pop bands of the '90s, and those um, those Billboard top hits compilations. I do remember the end of the or the early 2000s. It was the, the kind of at the end of the CD era. The, the, those were the uh, lots of those you know yeah, disco so those compilations would, and everything. Pump those out disco funk anything that you could possibly imagine hip hop hits of the nineties, yeah, like any of yeah. those compilations, you would just license them even down to like cat songs and Halloween songs, <laughs> right? Sound effects, sound effects, yeah. and then soundtracks. So that was my introduction into licensing. Hmm. And so I started doing that. And then I also um, started doing sample clearance. It was a position that was open that nobody really wanted to do. So I took that on as well, kind of having a background in, 
coming from hip hop and knowing and samples and you know, yeah. DJ world yeah. really well, I started doing not only third party licensing for compilation, but clearing samples for people who would sample anything in the Warner Music Group catalog. And then during the course of that time, over a few years, I just transitioned over to the film and TV department. Was we we're almost all on the same floor. We're all licensing, but there was audio licensing, basically for compilations, mm-hmm. uh, greeting cards, soundtracks, and things like that. And then there were there was visual licensing, which was film and TV. So under the same umbrella, but split up between audio and vi- visual. And so uh, around 2006, I just transitioned from audio over to visual. And um, another part of my job was also label liaison. So working with all the labels that fall under the Warner Music Group catalog to get those songs placed in in television at the time. Mm. So if it was an artist on Atlantic Records, like at the time, uh, who was popular there, uh, Missy Elliott, Kid Rock, those were some of the artists of that era, sure. PLG. And then Warner Brother Records, which is another label, which at the time had Green Day, Linkin Park, those were and then Rhino, which was a part of that as well, was all the catalog division. So anything that was basically older older than two years was considered catalog. Oh wow! So that would, so that would include Led Zeppelin, The Doors, Frank Sinatra, Ray Charles. That's how I ended up working on the Ray Charles. It's mm-hmm. the legacy artists that are a part of the catalog that belonged to Rhino, which was still Warner Music Group. So it was basically broken down into three labels: Warner. Uh, Atlantic and Rhino, and I was um, in charge of getting music placed for the TV shows. And was and that so, a good business back then for the labels? That was that good money. At the time, it's um, it's ironic that was kind of it was a it was a great business, but it was kind of an underappreciated business. Yeah, <laughs> we were kind of uh, looked at as the redheaded stepchild. Okay, <laughs> at that time. Their labels were still selling a lot of records. So a sync was just kind of like a cherry on top. Right. It was like, oh, that's that's nice. That's cute. Okay, great. You got a, a song on a compilation or you got a song in a TV show. All right, that's cool. That's nice. We just sold six million records for Linkin Park. <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't looked at the same way as it is today. And I kind of refer to it as the post Napster world. Right, right. I'm, once the sales started to go down and you started to notice that our department, all we did was make money. Right. That's right. Because yeah. we didn't need to manufacture CDs. Yeah. And we were essentially just licensing the content that the, the company already controlled and people would have to come to you and you would license them. And so and initially unaf- unaffected by piracy unaffected by piracy because you you know studios and networks still had to come to the rights owners to mm-hmm. license those songs and pay a fee and so we just kind of like existed as like all right you know kind of extra and that's how we were looked at we are some of my old co-workers we always joked that we used to never get invited to any of the cool parties yeah we didn't get invited to the grammys or any of that yeah. we were just kind of like we looked at as a service department because uh it, it was all about A&R and it was all about marketing the big songs. And we just 
provided a service. If somebody wanted to license the song, they would come through our department and we would license it. Let me, was that can I, sorry, I just want to interrupt you and ask you just going back on this history, because you're talking about film and TV and, and sync, not really being as sexy as it is today. And, and right. I, and I, I kind of thinking back to the, to the early two thousands and, and in my memory and correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, you know, when we're talking mid to late nineties, the only time I could ever think of, of, of your world would be the soundtrack section at the record store. And, sure. and that was, you know, those were great, but um, I, there was something happening in the early two thousands with, with TV shows when they started to like teen dramas, when they started to sync um, indie rock songs, like, like the OC or Gilmore girls where, and, right. and that's when I noticed the shift. Is that wh what was happening then? Yeah, that's about the the time period when you started to notice the shift. It's right around when Napster is, you know, in full mm -hmm. bloom and going on. And then you're starting to see, labels are starting to see, it still hadn't cut in completely, but you're starting to see a decline in typical record sales. You still had the, the big artists who would still sell their records, but some of the mid-level artists may struggle with that. And then those shows, that's when you started to see Shows like um, you mentioned the OC mm -hmm. and um, some of the CW shows. Yes, yeah, and some of those, like you said, some of those teen shows yeah. that would have, especially they would do a lot with baby bands. Oh, okay. and and bands that hadn't come out yet. So that was kind of, and Alex Patsavis is a well-known music supervisor, was the supervisor on those shows. Mm. And we would work closely with her. She would come and say, hey, what's a, you know, what's a great band that you guys are, you know, looking to get out there? Because you could also license them for relatively cheap. They might do, some of them, they would do an on-camera performance. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I remember that too, yeah. <laughs> These are our baby bands that are just looking for opportunities. So it's not going to cost what it would be to, would cost to get Lincoln Park on a show yeah, or to get Missy Elliott. So you would see a lot of those. And it was also an introduction because these are brand new artists and they're still building up their fan base. Well, now we're, we're hand, helping our marketing department and the labels with that. So we would work closely with those kind of supervisors on those shows and get those artists either on the show, get their songs used in some of the key scenes, some of the montage scenes, mm -hmm. whether it was a romantic scene or, you know, a breakup scene or, you know, a car accident. And they would use like a good minute of a song. And then people would go, oh, what's, and this is before Shazam or any of that. So <laughs> we actually started talk as we started to see those changes and like, oh, okay, where, where were these sales coming from? Because, you know, we, last week there was nothing and now all of a sudden we see a hundred percent increase what happened and then it would be like oh the, the song was on this tv show called oc and oh, then right. all of a sudden we started getting invited to the marketing department meeting wow and they started you know asking us about that and then trying started to writing started writing sync into the marketing plan for each artist which again was oh. bad and good because not every artist works for sync no matter what their sound is oh, they, interesting it really just depends so they would start writing the marketing plan where it used to say radio tv um back then mtv uh, print ads and then all of a sudden you started to see film and tv hmm. opportunities and that you know, kind of created a situation where then those labels started to bring in their own marketing 
film and TV people. And they weren't people who were in our department. They were more or less marketing people. And they were like, okay, go get these film and TV opportunities for these because we're starting to see these um, these changes in the industry and we're starting to see some effect from our baby bands. Let's see if this can work for some of our other ones. So each of the labels then started hiring people that were specifically marketing people compared to us. We, we were always just licensing people. Like, so we were aware of budgets. We were aware of clearances. We dealt with the managers. It wasn't just going, Hey, give the song away. It was, we still had a budget to make and we still needed to maintain that and, and also try to keep the fees at a certain level for our artists. Even if they were baby artists, we didn't want to give it away for free because you're still dealing with major label clients. So we want to make sure that they're getting fair market value for their content. Right. And can, can you just, um, uh, inject where, where does, um, TV commercials fall into this timeline? Like using a um, song in a gap commercial or, or something. Around the, around the same time you started to see, um, commercials, always use songs here and there, mm. but you started, you did start to see more, but typically back then in the early two thousands and late nineties, most songs in commercials were well-known and recognizable. Okay. So you would see, you know, a Madonna song or a uh, chic or mm -hmm. Donna summer. You might hear a song or, you know, a Motown song and a commercial. And it was just kind of like, Oh, okay, cool. It was, again, it, it was looked at more as a cherry on top because, these were already iconic songs, yeah. iconic artists. Yeah. So for them to be used in a commercial wasn't, you know, that out of the ordinary. Mm. And then uh, a little bit after that, you started to see some brands taking a chance and licensing songs from either unknown artists that were on major labels or even indie, independent artists and different genres. Because it used to be you really only saw songs that were well-known by the general public. Yeah. You know, yeah. a top point. 15, top 20 song that, okay, if, even if you didn't know it because it was some time before you, you would know, oh, that's, yeah, that's Frank Sinatra or that's <laughs> somebody else. It was, but then you started to see it change a little bit as, in my opinion, you start to see some of the brands change and then some of the people within the brands change as, well, you know, some out and some people came in with some new fresh ideas that's a really great point that it is brands taking a chance because what you're talking about originally a brand would want to play it safe and be associated yeah. with a sinatra or aretha franklin or just something that is family friendly you know yeah. uh and and but yeah that's very interesting that they would eventually start to take a chance so they would just start to to take a chance it was slow it was definitely slow they would take a chance with relatively unknown songs, relatively unknown artists, and different genres, mm. because it was also very genre-specific. In the early 2000s, you rarely saw hip-hop in a commercial. Right. And if it was, it was like the super overwhelming pop hip-hop of MC Hammer or Young MC. Yeah. It was something like that that was so pop and mainstream that you didn't even necessarily associate it with what was going currently going on in hip hop to the larger hip hop community. Right. So you, you wouldn't necessarily see like a, a, hear an ice cube song in a commercial, or you wouldn't hear outcast in a commercial mm -hmm. where the artists who for the culture were big. But in, if you looked at in terms of TV commercials, you would only see, you can't touch this or bust a move or those songs yeah. that were just yeah. so big that they were, you know, Safe. basically, than any other pop pop song. Yeah, yeah. Oh man, that's so interesting.
I haven't really gone, I haven't thought about this so much. It's so interesting to hear your perspective living in that time. Uh, um, what was the, uh, the transition then um, from your time there to starting your own company? Uh, let's see. I, I was at Warner for about eight years, and then I got offered an opportunity to run the department at Universal on the label side as well. And that was to expand beyond because at um, Warner, I was just doing television and I wanted to expand my clients to ads, um, film, video games, commercials. So I went over to Universal to do that. And, you know, at that time, still to this day, Universal was the biggest record label in the world. So they had everything from the Motown catalog to Def Jam to Interscope. It's everything under that umbrella. So it was the same role to some degree at Universal, but only on a bigger level and with more mediums. Mm. So I headed up the department and oversaw everything creatively. And, you know, we were responsible for getting everything from something from the Verve catalog, a classic jazz catalog, Mm -hmm. looking for opportunities for that to our classical catalog, to hip hop, R&B, like everything that fell under that umbrella. So it might be the latest U2 album or song, or it might be uh, a new up and coming artist by the name of Lady Gaga that we're trying to get placed. (laughs) That's so interesting. So then I was there for a couple of years, and then I went over to EMI on the publishing side. I'd never worked on the publishing side. I'd always been on the label side. And EMI had actually just consolidated with Capital. So they put masters and publishing together. For those who don't know, most companies, at least back then, were separate. Like Warner, when I say Warner, I worked at Warner Music Group on the label side. Mm. So there's a record label, Atlantic Records, Warner Brother Records. There's a publishing side for every song. And so I always had been on the record side. And then EMI was my first time going on the publishing side, but I was still dealing with records because they consolidated. They tried to put Capital and EMI together and have the teams work together. Whereas in the past, they were always separate. You go to the publisher to clear the publishing and you go to the label to clear the late, the uh, the master side. Okay. And EMI attempted to put that together. It wasn't very successful. They were really just trying to, in my opinion, just trying to get the value up of the company because the company was for sale. Oh, I see. So they sold them to each, to different owners. So um, EMI was sold to Sony and then um, Capital, the master side, was, and which included Virgin, my old company that I started with, to Universal on the label side. Mm-hmm. And that's when I started my own company in 2012. So what is it about this field that really activates you, that really has kept you in it for 20 odd years? Uh, it started off as just, you know, for one, just a love of music. And it, it kind of combines things that I already just have a passion for and love, which number one is music, but then also film and mm-hmm. television. Like like a lot of people, I'm a, I'm a big fan of film and, and TV and just the marriage of music and film and television was just like a perfect thing that I didn't even necessarily know. Like, oh, hey, I want to do that they they were just kind of separate things that i loved and i didn't even put them together when i thought oh i want to work in the music industry i just wanted to work in the music industry and then you know during my time in college i had interned at paramount pictures Hmm. and it was but i looked at them as completely separate industries until i started working in licensing yeah and you know 
it's just, it would be no different. Like if you combine a couple of things that you love, like let's say you love music and cooking and you get a cooking show where you also get to pick music or you yeah. love music works. So it was just, you know, things that I, I love in terms of film, TV and music that I get to work with on a, on a daily basis. So that's the, the, the main thing. And it's just interesting with all the, the changes in the industry and being able to navigate and be kind of a chameleon and change with the times, mm-hmm. still stay true while, while still staying true to who I am as an individual, but be able to professionally work with a variety of genres and open up my musical palette and have it grow over the past 20, 25 years to include music that maybe I didn't grow up listening to. Like I didn't grow up listening to punk or I didn't grow up listening to metal. But now I, um, after you know 25 years in this business and licensing songs in every style, I have a, what I think is a healthy working knowledge of the majority of popular music that's around, whether it's hip hop, punk, electronic, you know, you, you kind of have to, to survive in this business. I believe you have to have a good, healthy knowledge of trends and styles and sounds of now and of the past. Like you can't, I, I, you know, one of the reasons I feel like I've been able to not only work on my own, but work within a corporate structure is to always be kind of learning and adapting and being open to things that maybe you weren't familiar with growing up. Well, this leads me to a question I, I was curious about. Uh, what makes a music supervisor unique? To, do they have to be unique? Is it is it a genre that makes them unique? And, and you're saying maybe that's not the case, but do you, do you have a, a specific uh, genre or vibe that people come to you for? Or do, do supervisors try to have some sort of calling card? Well, the supervisors that I deal with, because just to be clear, I'm on the other side, like I'm pitching music to the supervisors. Right, right. okay. So what the, um, this, uh, what's the best way to answer this? I guess, in my opinion, the best music supervisors do have very taste, but not all supervisors have that. Some do have a, and I think everybody kind of has like a specific passion that they might like maybe you are really into electronic music or maybe you're really into country but within that in my opinion this is just my opinion you need to have a palette for a variety of genres because it's not about your personal playlist it's about being knowledgeable to get the job done so if you're hired as a supervisor for a job and it is a period piece set in the 60s you need to be knowledgeable about yeah, yeah. that era and knowledgeable about the songs. And a lot of what supervisors have to deal with is not only appeasing the studio and the director and the editors, but it's also getting things in at the right budget. So a, a director might come in and they know nothing about the licensing world and they will say, all right, we want the Beatles and we want... Jimi Hendrix, and we want Bob Dylan, and then their music budget is like $40,000. <laughs> so then the supervisor has to be kind of a politician and make them understand, here is what your budget is, here is what these songs typically will cost. And then here are songs that might be in the same realm as the songs that you like, similar artists from the same era that give the same vibe, 
but may not be as expensive right. or as difficult to clear because sometimes it may not even be about money. The artist just may not. The, what do you do if the artist just denies it? You want, hey, you know what? I want to use this Beatles song, but this is the perfect song. Okay, well, they denied it. Now what do you do? Yeah. <laughs> is, and that's a lot of what the supervisor has to do. You you had said something about this earlier on. Is is there certain genres that do better than others? Um, and maybe even for specific applications? Is, is it a matter of finding that licensing niche for your catalog? Yeah, for sure. There are... For one, it's broad, and uh, some people will tell you, oh, yeah, you never know what can get licensed, but I always like to be brutally honest. There are absolutely genres that do much better in licensing than other genres. There's some genres that just aren't going to be licensed as frequently. doesn't mean they never get licensed, but I'm talking about frequency. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I feel um, I have an advantage of is working at those major labels and being on the end major publishers and being on the side of part of my role was I saw every for, you know, the 15 years that I worked at labels and publishers, I saw every request that came in. And so you get an idea of what songs are continuously, you know, being requested, what style, genres are constantly being requested. So it gives you kind of like the metrics that you need to know, like, oh, okay. And those things, you know, change over time. Like the same thing that was licensed a lot in 2001 may not necessarily be the same thing in 2022. Mm-hmm. There are certain um, similarities of songs that work in terms of songs that have build to them and songs that, you know, songs that have a great general theme or topic. Those type of things are across genre. But then there are other genres that, you know, just don't, you know, do very well. Like, um, For example, jazz. I love jazz, but jazz is not going to be, you know, licensed in the vast majority of film and TV shows in 2022. That's a good point, unless it's background music at a club. Yeah, it's going to be be background music here and there, and it's going to be a specific spot. Yeah, that's a great point. You're you're not going to watch a, a bunch of your TV shows or a bunch of films and see jazz in there. Yeah. That's just, you know, and you know, I've been with catalogs and represented everything from the Blue Note catalog, you know, John Coltrane, Miles Davis. We would maybe license, you know, let's say 2007, we might license Miles Davis five times a year. Hmm. And you don't get much bigger than Miles Davis. Yeah, that's right. In the jazz world. Yeah. So that's just an example of like, and those were very specific. And then even just in terms of the briefs that come in, because the other part is these supervisors and networks of studios are coming to me and sending out briefs and saying, this is what we're looking for, for this scene, for this project. And here's our slate of TV shows, films, commercials, video games for the year. Here's what we're looking for, for each scene, for each film, for each TV show. So you're looking at it. And I always equate what I do to being a bartender. You sit back and you see what is the audience, what is the crowd constantly asking for? And if you're at a bar in Chicago, they probably aren't, you know, right outside of Wrigley Field, they probably aren't asking for high-end wine on a regular basis on game night. Right, right. They might be asking for, you know, malt liquor, for beer, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's what you provide. So it doesn't mean that 
that wine or that high-end liquor doesn't have value. It's just what is more likely to get requested on a regular basis. Most people that are going to a sports bar are going to have a beer. So, and that's just what it is. So uh, that leads me, I'm, I'm very curious then, what percent of songs used in film and TV or, or, the, or the tracks that you've been working with lately are from uh, an artist's catalog that, that was originally intended to be released traditionally as a, a, an album track versus songs that were produced and composed specifically to be used in, in film and TV. This is, I'm kind of curious about this. Oh, okay. Hard to put a percentage on it, but it's a, cause it's really almost two different worlds. Okay. Like there's licensed, there's songs that are licensed. That's one world. Yeah. And then there are songs that are written for a film or written for a TV. So the the majority of songs like that you hear, like the Kate Bush example, those are just songs that exist. Yeah. But then you have, well, now are you talking about score for well, the film? No, I, I'm, I was getting wind of, and I was speaking with somebody at a music library, but I was getting wind of, and maybe I just misinterpreted this, that, that nowadays that there are some artists who will write a, a pop love song but with the intent that it'll it'll be great on film and TV, more so than oh, yeah. this is going to be a, a a good single for my Spotify. Oh yeah, there that's that's been somewhat of a change in the industry. Okay, there, that that can be difficult for some artists because you also don't want the song to sound like it was written for sync. Right. Yeah. But there are definitely artists that that do that. There's an area of the industry for that. I I can't really put a percentage on it. Um, Because it really just depends from project to project. And um, I've never worked at a music library. So like what a library might have them, might have clients come to them for, it would be different than what they would come to for me. Or when I was in a major label or a major publisher, they're typically coming for songs. And the outliers, when they come and say, can you write a song? Like, I'll just give you an example. Last week, like I get briefs on a daily basis and I'm Mm -hmm. sending out music every day. So last week I had a supervisor reach out about somebody writing a theme song for a show. Hmm. And that is the first time that's happened this year. Hmm. So it's not, it's not common, but I, don't, but I also don't represent a library. So right. that's a little bit different, but the, the opportunities of people reaching out to say, um, will you write this song for this TV show or for this film are there but it's uh, those are kind of two different worlds, mm. and it really, really just depends on each project because that can be a lot more difficult, in my opinion, than just you know a song that you already have or that you you're sending out to people. Now that doesn't mean plenty of people are writing songs with sync in mind, yeah, without going too far. And I work with artists that that do that, and it's. What I try to do with the artists that I do work with that are creating songs is give them ideas about what works for sync. So I might say, you know, uh, general themes are are great for for sync, just okay. things that are relatable to anybody. Yeah. So I might make a suggestion to an artist. This is one thing that comes up all the time: is do you have any non-romantic love songs? And okay. people always, what's a non-romantic love song? <laughs> and I tell them it's a song that's about love, that's not about being in love with, yeah, a, yeah. with a person romantically. And the best example that I give of that is 
Stevie Wonder, Isn't She Lovely? Okay. That's, yeah. that's a love song. Yeah. But it's a love song to his daughter. It's right. not romantic. And the more you think about it, just, you know, anybody listening to this or you just go home and think about how many songs are about love that aren't about romantic love. Mm. And it gets, the list gets shorter and shorter and shorter. It's hard to find songs that don't instantly go, that are love songs that don't instantly go into Baby, I Love You So Much or I Want to Hold Your Hand. Yeah. And is that something that you see requested in pitches? All the time. Interesting. Okay. All the time. Because when you think about it, it's really hard to write a song from that place that isn't, you know, I'm trying to get with her or she's trying to get with her. It's easier to, to go down that road. It's easier to yeah. go down that road. <laughs> yeah. And uh, an example is I had a scene on, I think it was NCIS LA, and they were looking for a song. The scene was a, 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 a man in his 40s and his nephew, who was supposed to be 12 or 13 years old. They are throwing the football in the park, and the father of the boy, who is the brother of the uncle, was killed. So they're in the park, and they're throwing the ball, and they are tossing it back and forth. And the son, the nephew says to his uncle, I really miss him. The uncle takes the ball and says, we used to do this all the time. I miss him too. And they're throwing the ball back and forth. They wanted a song to play to that. Hmm. Well, that's clearly a song about being together, family, love, and you know, coming together after a tragedy. And they clearly love each other. But you can't have a song like I want to hold your hand. It just yeah. would be awkward and yeah. doesn't fit. So that and then the scenes that always come up, the first dance at a wedding. Okay. Yeah. The father and the daughter. You can't play you like play. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so those kind of things come up or just friendship songs that are just like two guys are just you know, really close friends. One went through something. The other one is consoling him and you want a song to play to that. Yeah. That's such a great point. Yeah. So those are, and then you you think of the, those like, sorry to those iconic moments, those iconic songs. I'm thinking now, as you're talking about this of like, what a wonderful world. And and that can be used in so many, uh, everybody loves the sunshine, which I think has been used more than anything. And that's just, uh, yeah, and that's why those songs get used so much is because they're both those life. Are, really hard to find songs like that that are just about feeling good or just about love, but not necessarily romantic love. Oh, like, they give genius. that feeling that vibe. So, and you know, and you to no, encourage artists to write for that doesn't feel like you're selling out as a songwriter. Doesn't feel right. like I'm selling out to saying, "Oh, I got to write a song that that is going to get me into a movie," because because it's actually just a nice prompt for a songwriter. It's just a nice challenge yeah. to say, hey, it's actually easier to write a love song. <laughs> and that's how I present it to the artist. That's awesome. I don't want it to be cheesy. I don't want it to be, I don't want you to write a song that you hate. Yeah. Like, yeah. here are some parameters. And it's, you know, I always use Motown as the greatest record label in the history of the world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I always use that as an example of this, the way that they wrote songs there's a reason those songs are 50, 60, 70 years old now, and we still constantly hear them just in the public conscious because they were really well-written just about life. Mm-hmm. And in my experience, when you just kind of talk to a, a songwriter or an artist about just writing songs about life, they get that. Just like, hey, you know what? There's you know songs about overcoming struggle. 
Like who can't relate to that? Yeah. That's really relatable. Now, whatever that means to you, I'm not going to give you all of the words, but can you write a song about overcoming struggle? Mm. Can you write a song about pain? And I think most songwriters, you know, look at that as a challenge and go, oh, okay. That's, it's almost like going to songwriters camp. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as opposed to just thinking about it, like, oh, I need to write this sync for this particular thing, because even after that, you still have to go and find those spots. It's just a matter of now that you've written this, these songs, let me get these out to people. And just when those opportunities come up, I can send this song and it's like, oh, hey, wow, that's that's a really great song. And I've had success with songs like that over the years. And then you've also had songs where they wrote a great song and the timing just didn't work out and haven't been able to place it. But the great thing is once you write that song, that is a song that exists in your catalog. So it's not like one and done. And you're not... Yeah focused on it just being a single, you're just adding some depth to your catalog. That is very, very interesting. So then how do you work with artists with your company? Like what is your place in this whole uh, ecosystem of sync? So it's a, it's a combination of my company, Dahomey Music, we represent uh, artists, labels, and publishers and on let's say i'm a label and publishing side like i have publishing companies and labels that i represent that may not have an in-house team or person Mm. to work the catalog so it's primarily independent labels or independent publishing companies and they don't have anybody in-house and it can honestly be difficult for a um, an independent label to have somebody dedicated to sync when you might have a smaller catalog or a specific catalog. Sure. Like one of the catalogs that I represent is uh, primarily an EDM label. Okay. EDM can be difficult to place depending on how it sounds. Like, you know, the heavy dance stuff, that's going to be limited opportunities. Mm-hmm. You're not going to see a bunch of heavy dance music in your average projects. Yeah. They're going to be really specific. So, to hire somebody in-house to do that can be a little difficult. So what I've done is create a lane for those companies to have me represent their catalog and work with them to let them understand this is going to be a challenge, but we can grow and sync because everybody wants, not everybody, but a lot of people want that overnight success. And I always have to explain to them, you're building them. This is a marathon. We're building up the story of these songs, these artists and this label and finding the right opportunities for them. It might not be today or tomorrow. It may be three months and maybe six months, but the the goal is growth. So it right. had zero syncs last year, Let's get 20 this year. If you got 20 this year, let's get 30 or 40 next year and build that up. And then as you're doing that, also be aware of what people are looking for in sync so that if you want to write songs that work well for sync, I can work with you on that. Hmm. So that's one part of it. The other part is a couple of the independent artists that I also have a publishing company. So I have some artists that I have signed as writers and artists that I have you know, I represent the songs that they have, and I also work with them to write songs that do work for sync. Okay, okay. So that's that's basically my role. So what what would this be called then? Uh, in, in like, I, I want to speak to for a second to our audience of independent labels and people who own independent labels, and and what what should they be looking for if they want to get into the world of of making money in in, in sync licensing? And I know. The whole the whole thing seems intimidating, and that's why we're kind of diving into this series, um, right. especially for 
my audience who might be, um, you know, smaller indie labels, one person operations, uh, who it might feel like they have to create this completely other division in their label. Um, I, I want to ask you how how does a record label start to build a licensing strategy for their catalog? Is it looking for someone like you? Is it dumping everything into a music library? Is it pitching themselves to to supervisors? What advice do you have for for small labels? Good question. That is, it really depends on the label and the sound of the label and what you're trying to build and where you start. So there's not one generic size fits all kind okay. of answer to that. So I'll give like a few yeah, different sure. uh, options. One is to look for, you know, a sync agent like myself and say, all right, let's bring this person on to represent the catalog and go out there so then I don't have to worry about that. Mm -hmm. You can either deal with somebody that is commission only or somebody that maybe you put on retainer. There's a few different ways to go about that. Okay. So that's, that's one option. And then the other one is to do it yourself as the, I'm assuming we're talking about the label owner. Yeah. Yeah. And that's just, you know, developing those relationships. And I know how difficult it is as, as a small business owner myself and, you know, being a one person, a one man army, I yeah. know how difficult that can be to do multiple things. Like yeah. I not only am I pitching music, I'm a publisher and I register the songs. So I'll, trust me, I know yeah. how daunting yeah. that task is. And then to add film and TV onto it is mm -hmm. <laughs> even more. And this is for full clarity, this is a full time job. And I'm getting that sense. Yeah. Yeah, staying in the mix on things is a full-time job. I'm mm -hmm. interacting with supervisors, studios, and networks on a daily basis. Like every wow. day. That's wow. that's what I do. So that's the lion's share of my job on top of, you know, like I said, being a publisher and registering songs and doing that. So I don't get a lot of sleep. <laughs> that's kind of what it calls for, as I'm sure many of your listeners will know, as you know, being a independent, you know, um, label so you can do it on your own and that can be really difficult because it can be hard to break in i won't say it's impossible but it can be very difficult to break in to get to know the the players and the people the supervisors and the networks and the studios because a lot of this a, a huge part of this is relationships yeah like interesting a big part of the i'd say the major part of why i was able to leave you know, I'm a major label, a major publishing company and start my own is because of the relationships that I had built there for 15 years. Mm. Like when I worked at Warner and Universal and EMI, I got to meet everybody. I had the biggest catalogs in the world. <laughs> so I know Alex Patsavis or I know Gary Calamar or all these supervisors for every show. There's, I won't say I know every single person in the industry, sure. but after you know 25 years, I, I pretty much know, I know all the major players. And, you know, most people who've been around for a while will know me or at least know my name. There are always going to be some people who either I haven't worked with or just seen my name or some people who've come up later. But for the most part, especially in film and TV, most people have at least seen my name. Right. Well, so I, I'm getting the sense that it's, that it's very difficult to do on a part-time scale, like you're mentioning. It is. 
it's really difficult to do it on a part-time scale. The which what somebody could try to do is, and this is depending on the size. Let's say you have a, a small label with five artists. Mm-hmm. And this goes the same for, you know, I tell this to managers. You have a management company, you have five artists. Well, find the shows or films or ad companies that use the kind of music that you represent and target those. So whereas somebody like me, I go wide, mm-hmm. you know, I'm I'm hitting up six, seven hundred people on a regular basis. Okay. But I have a, a ton of catalog that I represent in every genre and every style, and including some recognizable stuff and stuff that people will come to me for. Mm-hmm. So it's I'm assuming your audience probably doesn't have recognizable catalog. Yeah, no, no, not for the most part. And especially anyone who's, like you're saying, getting started and they could have anyone from one artist to five artists or 15 yeah. artists, but yeah. So if you have, you know, one to five, you know, up and coming artists, I would suggest targeting some of those shows or films that, you know, you're going to have to do a lot of research. That's again, why it's so time consuming. Yeah. You got to do research um, check out a few websites. There's a site called tunefond.com okay. that, that really gives a, a great layout on the songs that are used in shows. It's not 100% comprehensive, but it gives you a, a good broad idea. So you can look at look up songs that are in shows, the kind of music that they use, and then you can look up, it'll tell you who the supervisor is sometimes on the show. And obviously, you'll know what network it airs on. And then you can try to connect with those people and say, oh, um, I see that for this show. Let's say you have um, really cool electronic music and you find a show that is really uses a lot of electronic music. You know, see if you can find that supervisor or that mm-hmm. supervisor's coordinator and put together, you know, a little package for them of music. Oh, Make sure that... Make sure the music is um, all the information in the metadata is together, like the, the rights for the song, the publishing, the master, what you represent, all the songwriter information, the PRO information. Make sure all of that is in the metadata mm-hmm. and then start reaching out to them using you don't want to send like single songs to anybody's email. So you want to use some type of service, whether it's Box or Disco. Disco is yeah. probably a little popular right now. Yeah. And then just start reaching out to them and say, oh, I represent Catalog X. Um, I noticed on your show, you used a lot of artists in this kind of lane. And I think I have an artist that might be worth your while. Um, That's here smart. Is, here's a brief you know, bio about the artist, keep it short and sweet. And here are the songs with the instrumentals. Please let me know if you have any questions, you know, and just be, you know, cordial, be respectful and don't also take it personal when you don't hear back because you're probably not going to hear back. (laughs) Yeah. Have to put yourself in their shoes. If you're a music supervisor on insecure, good friend of mine, who's, who's on the, supervisor on that show you're getting hundreds of emails every day yeah yeah from people you know from people you don't know from every label every studio i mean every label every publisher management company that you can think of and it's not to say that your music isn't good it's just no there's they just have so many options there's just only so many days in only so many time so much time in a day yeah yeah there's only so many emails because you still have the job to do and you have they have deadlines to meet. That's so right. 
you can't go through every single email. So try not to personalize it. It can be, you know, definitely frustrating, but hopefully you can meet them on a, you know, kind of a low and catch them with the right song. Sometimes it might just be one song or two songs or a couple of, you know, your best three songs from a particular artist. You have yeah. artist X and, hey, you know what? I, I think this artist could really uh, work well on the show. Here are the three songs, including the instrumentals. All the information is in there. This maybe describe what it sounds like. Like, oh, this is a, a cool indie pop song. Sometimes I would suggest, you know, making, um, I know artists and sometimes labels don't like to do this, but when you're dealing with unknown songs, it, it can be good to make a comparison to yeah, yeah. Uh, an artist that that might be in the similar, in a, in a similar way. Like, let's say you have a, a songwriter who is in that Kate Bush lane. Yeah. You say, oh, you know, they would fit perfectly uh, a soundtrack or a company in Kate Bush. I always tell artists, who would you tour with? Right. <laughs> that's it, right. Yeah. Who does, who does it make sense for you? Yeah, to tour that's with? good. Are you, that's good. Are you more of a John Mayer kind of a songwriter artist? Like, oh, okay, well, mention John Mayer or mm -hmm. other artists like that, that you see yourself, you know, opening for so that you can give the supervisor an idea of what I'm getting into, because that way you give them a, the chance to say, okay, I don't need that right now, but I'm going to put this because all supervisors have files. Everybody has files. And if you say, hey, I, I create romantic singer-songwriter material similar to John Mayer. Okay, I get that. I'm working on a show that is 60s rock. And my other show is 90s pop. And my last show is all hip-hop. Okay, I don't have anything that I need for this. But yeah. hey, I like the way this was presented. Cool, I'll put this to the side for when I have a project that works like this. And that's part of the research as well is try to find those shows that are we're currently working on that. And that could be really difficult to do, but you know, through tune find and some searching, hopefully you can find some stuff that fits the artist that you are representing and then just get it to those targets. So don't try to go wide. Don't try to hit, you know, 300 supervisors like I do try to find, you know, five or six, and, and hone in on those and try to target those and really target what they are need, needing. And look, you have to look at it as you are providing a service for them. So they have a job to do. That's right. Um, yeah. I need um, really cool indie rock. Hey, I have, you know, a really cool indie rock band out of Nashville. Um, kind of sound like the Strokes. Check this out. Mm -hmm. Here you go. Here's two songs. Well, I, that's it. I think that uh, artists and, and labels especially should have no problem uh, using a sound alike or saying we sound like this band or uh, that, especially just because it just, you know, checks up a box for the, the supervisor in their mind and they go, you know what, I don't yeah. even need to open this email because I know. Or, I know what it is. Yeah, yeah. And even if it is like you don't want to necessarily say sound alike, but you could just say I'm always careful with my language mm -hmm. um, and just kind of say like, similar to or in the vein sure, of, or sure. like you know how you go on spotify and it says if you like this you may also yeah, like exactly that's saying the same thing that's but it's right. like oh, okay hey, yeah. and you can recommend it songs off of that and youtube has that same kind of algorithm right that's you right watch a certain amount of videos okay now all of a sudden you're getting videos by a similar artist well, so it's it's that same kind of uh 
same kind of theory. Well, so it, it, it could be like an actual comparison to other artists, or it could be descriptive, like, oh, this is dark indie pop, or this is, mm-hmm. you know, heavy, um, gritty, deep south hip hop. And if you put that no. in the subject line, they might just put that in a folder and come yeah. back to it. You might just you might just slide it over to a photo. Like, <laughs> yeah. oh, okay, hey, I don't need that right now. Yeah. Or oh, I'm looking for that. Okay, cool. Yeah. And then you know, keep it concise, keep it kind of direct and to the point. Don't make it too long because, as I always like to say, we in the music industry don't like to read too much. You're getting so <laughs> yeah, many emails, right. so you kind of keep it direct and to the point, yeah. still with respect and just kind of respecting people's time. And then try and develop those relationships, maybe target three to five supervisors and try and build those relationships. Because when you go out with a catalog of five artists, that's going to mean that you probably have less than 100 songs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So for a supervisor, it's going to be difficult for me to come to you if I can go to Sony or Universal or Warner or somebody like me and I have a need of 10 different songs in 10 different lanes. Right. right. I can get them all from you or I can come to label X and they have one kind of style, one song and one artist like, okay, I don't have time to just come to that. So so you want to, you want to try and target those people for what you have. And a lot of labels have identities. They have like, okay, I'm the cool indie rock label. I'm the cool EDM label. That could be part of your, your pitch or your sale. Or like mm-hmm. I recently got a thing from a, um, from an Indian label and they specialize in indie music. Oh, yeah. okay, cool. Like, yeah. Hey, I don't need that right now, but it's good to, to be aware and know like, Oh, is this catalog? Like, is this sixties and seventies Indian or is it, current contemporary Indian music. Oh, right. okay, cool. Yeah, so that's awesome. Yeah, that's what I would say. Try and target. This is huge. Uh, Thank you. Do some, do some research and target. Uh, uh, just pick out a handful of supervisors and shows to target for your label. And then you might have to continue to move on because that, you know, like I said, you're probably not going to get an immediate response. You might, but it's, you know, you can kind of continue. It's a long game. Yeah, it's a long game. Follow the show. Like, definitely watch the shows. Mm-hmm. I used to have a thing where, back in the days, I used to make sure I watched two episodes of every show. Okay. Granted, that's long before streaming services, so I can't do that anymore. Yeah. But you want to be, as somebody who's starting out, and if you are targeted in three to five shows, watch a couple of episodes of the show so that you're aware of it. So that's you're smart. not pitching things that don't fit. So like, as you, your question earlier about, oh, are a lot of people going to hit up, you know, about Stranger Things? Well, you're going to have everybody hitting up about Stranger Things, even current artists. Mm-hmm. And if you watch the show, you know that they use a lot of catalog. Yeah. Yeah. From 20, 30, 40 years ago. So if you are a new artist, is that, uh, does it make sense for you to target that show? If you look up and you see the past three to five seasons have all been songs from the seventies, eighties and nineties. And you're only going to frustrate the the music yeah. supervisor. Yeah. Maybe you need to focus on a show that is looking for more new music from yeah. new artists. Yeah. And it's not, especially if it's period piece, like I always say, there's always an exception. So you never say a blanket statement, but in general period pieces don't use new music. Yeah. 
Oh, so yeah. don't waste your time or their time sending your music for a film on Martin Luther King in, <laughs> in 1964. Like, well, like you said, it's going to frustrate them. This is this has been so helpful, and uh, I think everyone's going to for the next couple of weeks. Everyone's going to be putting. Uh, similar vein to Kate Bush in the subject lines of all right. the emails. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> but thank you for sharing your wisdom and your experience with our audience. This has been incredibly enlightening and, and very helpful. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. And um, best of luck to you. And uh, it's been speaking to you. Thank you all for listening. And thanks to Tarek for being on the show. If you want to find out about his company, go to dahomeymusic.com. That's D A. H-O-M-E-Y music.com and you can also check them out on Instagram and if you haven't already make sure you download my free guide to sync licensing by going to otherrecordlabels.com slash sync where we have a whole litany of resources on this topic of sync licensing plus all of our previous interviews and episodes in this series otherrecordlabels.com slash sync <laughs>